0: I'm Jade Calloway. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for nearly 10 years now. I was born just two months before Iraq's president, Saddam Hussein, invaded Kuwait in August 1990. In this series, I'm learning all about the 1991 Gulf War by hearing from those who fought in it.
1: We all wanted to do our job and get home, because fundamentally that's what we wanted to do. And if we had to go to war to get home, then we'd go to war to get home.
2: My family was in the same position as the other families. None of us had ever been to a full war situation before, and none of us knew what to expect. It's obvious what's happening to you,
3: and if there's nothing to be scared about, well, you're not going to be scared, are you? But if you're so many thousand miles away, you don't know that.
4: This is BFBS, the British Forces Broadcasting Service in London. Very good afternoon to you, Prime Minister from a
5: sunny Germany. The main question on everybody's mind obviously is how long do you envisage that
4: this will go on? Music and messages for the British forces in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf on Operation Granby. This is Granby, the storm in the
0: desert. Iraqi President Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait on the 2nd of August 1990. But the thousands of British troops deployed out to the Gulf wouldn't see any real action until five months later, with the start of the combat phase in January 1991. According to Major General Patrick Cordingley, who is the commander of 7th Armoured Brigade, it was time to hurry
6: up and wait. I think really later on, having got into the desert and having done the essential training to give make everybody relaxed, make them realize that actually they could work their tanks in the sand, they, all the equipment was working properly. Then you get into a period when nothing was happening. And you can't train every day because if you do that, you break the equipment, you haven't got enough ammunition, or you can't necessarily have enough water to wash if you get filthy, for instance, in the middle of the desert. And so how do you keep people busy? Because one, one thing you don't want is a whole lot of soldiers, 12,000 actually hanging around, worrying about the future, worrying about their families back in England, what's going to happen next. We had to make certain that we overcame those problems.
0: David Garrigan, a corporal commanding a tank with the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars, remembers the novel ways of keeping the boredom at bay and keeping your mind from drifting back to Germany.
1: We all wanted to do our job and get home, because fundamentally that's what we wanted to do. And if we had to go to war to get home, then we'd go to war to get home and we'd have the CSE shows with people like Paul Daniels you know The Magician came out and Spit the Dog with Bob Carroll G's and that sort of stuff and that was quite good fun so morale was high because we tried to keep it high through anything at all you could find to try and just keep some of the boredom away it's not all excitement there's a lot of sitting around so we played Trivial Pursuits and we either Board game of question Sport, which we must have played a thousand times. So we knew all the answers before they come out, but it didn't really stop us playing it. And cards and other games that we invented just to try and relieve some of the boredom. So it doesn't sound like it should be a memorable thing, the fact that you were bored, but it just shows that, you know, sometimes you are just sat around doing nothing and you've got to try and entertain people, otherwise oh, they get bored and start doing silly stuff, which is what soldiers tend to do when they're bored.
0: So what were the living conditions like? And how did they differ across the services? Having been drafted from a shore establishment to HMS Heckler, Robert Hunter was racking up extra sea days in the Gulf.
3: Not bad compared to many warships I was on. Naval ships have large crews, and I don't know how large the crews are now, but at the time they were crowded. You know, that's what naval ships were. So as a senior eight, I shared a cabin with one other man but junior rates, they just had a standard mess deck. I'd say for a naval ship at the time, they were pretty good. The food was good. We had a perfectly adequate mess with a bar and, you know, a place to relax in the evening away from your workplace.
0: Back on dry land, tank commander David's take on the living conditions is a story of two halves. It was
1: hard in those first couple of weeks, really, really, really hard. We were in a hangar with, I honestly don't know how many people were in that hangar. A lot of people, thousands of people. And you had enough space between you and the next bed to pretty much swing your legs across. Then it was the next bed and, you know, that's how close everybody was. But the humidity and the temperature, because we were right by the sea, was blistering. And then the actual deployment to the desert was a blessed relief because it was so much cooler and my tank was my home so you were sort of masters of your own destiny so to speak so getting out from the port onto the tanks into the desert was a relief compared to being in that port it was horrible in that place i hated it it also then allowed us to go and do the job that we'd got there for which is to start training your tank rather than training your feet which is not something the tank soldiers are particularly good at. So we got out into the desert and then we started doing low level training which built up to higher level and manoeuvrability exercises plus on top of that the map reading was, was something else. Finding fire positions was quite hard and quite a featureless sort of flat terrain.
0: The R.E.F. meanwhile were operating from airports around the Gulf states. Jeff Brown was a GE, a ground engineer or flying spanner, on the C-130 Hercules. Like the rest of the MOD's air transport fleet, the Herks had been flying back and forth for months, delivering supplies to the region. To enable the crews to rest close to the airfields, the RAF were checking in rather than digging in.
7: We were all accommodated in an apartment complex on the outskirts of Riyadh and we all had our own room and we were protected by a Scottish regiment. Uh, It was fine. We listened to the World Service. We wrote blueies. We worked out that 10 times round the roof of the apartment was about a mile. So we used to go up and run about 10 times round it, or maybe 20. But yeah, we were fine. Apart from second tranche of jabs, we were not very happy then. Otherwise, yeah, morale was good. And what we called the International Crew, a United States Air Force Exchange Captain, a Canadian Air Force exchange navigator. The engineer was Glyn Chadwick, RAF, who was Welsh. The air loadmaster was Andy Hegarty, who was Irish. And there was myself of South African birth, so we called ourselves the international crew.
0: For many soldiers, sailors, and airmen, this was their first time deployed to a war zone. Colour Sergeant at the time, Mick McCarthy, and his family were based in Hamer in Germany when Op Granby began. He was second in command of 3rd Battalion, Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, Reconnaissance Platoon.
2: An infantry battalion such as ours is, is really, really close-knit. Everybody knows each other. We were going away regularly on other operations into Northern Ireland or tours of the Falklands and and some large exercises and all the rest of it. So, so the mechanism was there to kick in whenever it was needed. But mostly, it was, it was the friendships. I mean, my wife's still in very close um, contact and, and, and has very good friends from young women um, and families that she, she knew back then, that, you know. So when we would go, they would tend to band together and um, look after each other. We got, you know, we didn't have this sort of family network around us in the sense of our, our parents or our brothers or our sisters' families. So, you know, your family was your, um, your comrade's family.
0: Community spirit was high among the spouses of the tornado force, according to navigator Martin Wintermeyer
8: my wife was out in Germany and there was a really good network there and the ladies on the four ships all sort of were quite tight together and then the squadrons were quite tight together and they were looked after and had regular briefings meetings with coffee and stuff to keep them up to date so that was good they all formed really close friendships um, I think Mal's the same the friendships I formed on the four ship are really very very strong and you know to this day they're still really really strong and very very important to me
9: I've only been here a
10: few days but I've written about 12 or something like that and <laughs> they seem to have got through because I've got some replies so there's no problem there
0: Keeping in touch with family wasn't what it is today. This was long before video calls or even email. So a lot of the contact came in the form of Blueies, free airmail letters for British forces on operational duty.
1: Blueies have a double effect, don't they? They're fantastic because they're a good morale raiser, but it also makes you think of home. And if people had had something that perhaps had happened at home, that would have upset them.
2: I had my 30th birthday about two days after the hostilities ceased. It was the first day that we'd received an email for a long time. And amazingly, a lot of birthday cards arrived, which was fantastic, but surprisingly, a birthday cake even arrived. It was a bit sort of squished and a bit melted, but it was still intact. And so on my birthday, I shared it with my pals out in the middle of the desert in Kuwait by this stage.
3: My granddad, he was an ex-desert that, with the Royal Army Service Corps, out in the desert fighting Lommel and then later in Italy. And powdered egg, saw him through the second (laughs) row. I got a lot of parcels with powdered egg sent to me by my granddad. Most of my time in the Navy was spent writing letters. You wrote letters, that's what people did then. Didn't matter where the ships were in the world, getting the mail to and from ships was a big deal. If you were going away for a nine-month trip, a six-month trip, you basically said goodbye to your loved ones, and you very likely wouldn't speak to them again with voice until you returned. But I did ring home at a, a post office in the various Gulf states.
11: I'd been making maybe a weekly phone call back, and I'd already agreed with my parents that I'd ring Ellen, and they could ring Ellen and see what my news was. In the run-up, you're just talking about what you've been doing and training and what, what the book's like, what Saudi Arabia's like. But then during the war, you'd still get the opportunity to make those occasional phone calls. And I don't think the families really knew what to expect. Mm. They're sort of walking on eggshells a bit because you're, you're out there fighting a war and nobody's ever done that or, or none of us had ever done that. And you're ringing up and so Ellen would say, so how's things? Like, yeah, great, actually, it's going really well. I'm having a whale of a time based <laughs> on the fact that I'm still here and so you're in that quite sort of odd situation where you're trying to be upbeat and sound happy about the whole thing when in fact what you're doing is going out night after night and being shot at mm. the first time i spoke to her after the war had started she was just kind of almost in tears oh well you know lovely to speak to me but there i am on the other end effusive about how well it's all going and yeah, it's all great thanks which for me it was but for plenty of other families of course it wasn't and the phone calls Ellen took were always me ringing rather than somebody ringing to deliver some bad news which was sadly the happened for some of the families.
8: The conditions those cooks work under are gruelling. By midday, the kitchen tent will be like a sauna.
0: Food takes on a whole new importance when every day's Groundhog Day. Uh, perhaps they're a little
11: bit uh, hesitant about going for some of the more Middle Eastern Oriental dishes. Uh, they do like their traditional food, but uh, they love it. Goat's eyes and sheep's brains we've had to steer well clear of, I'm afraid. Uh, I don't think that would have gone down very well.
0: Among the troops at the tent city in al Jabile was David Garrigan, who was not about to write a five-star TripAdvisor review.
1: We are eating American rations. And I've been lucky enough to work with the American forces quite often, but their food is shocking. And the food we had was uh, was awful. Grits. It rhymes with something else for a reason, because it is absolutely horrible. We had that for breakfast and powdered eggs and all this sort of stuff.
0: Their rations may not have been up to much, but senior aircraftsman Mark Humphreys reckons the Americans had other perks.
1: Our morale tent, as it was, had a, like a table tennis table and some books and an area where you could write blueys. Whereas the Americans had a basketball court, they had Baskin Robbins, they had McDonald's, they had everything rolling off the back of a C5 and we were just you know in awe of what they had and how much money they were throwing at it.
0: There were no Big Macs for the British, but there was a supply of chocolate bars and fizzy drinks available from the NAFI, who ran both the NCS, that's the Naval Canteen Service, and the EFI the Expeditionary Force Institute. The civilian staff were issued a military uniform and a rank. Effie's Corporal Paul Chesters remembers the camo causing some confusion.
4: It surprised a lot of people. Uh, so you get down there, you're wearing a uniform. Uh, one occasion, I actually remember telling someone that I was Effie and he says, who the hell is Effie? And I reply, well, it's Naffie in uniform.
0: Bringing a taste of home to British troops stationed and deployed all over the world is Nafi's bread and butter. And in the Gulf, they helped deliver rather a lot of one British staple. Marmite. 12,000 jars of the love-it-or-hate-it brown stuff was sent to boost the morale of soldiers stationed in Saudi Arabia. I wonder what the Marmite haters thought about that. The Nafi played their part in boosting morale and went to great lengths to get their cans of fizz and sweet treats to the front line. Paul says one day they went out into the desert looking for customers when they came
4: across an armoured command post. I went down, knocked on the side and shouted and eventually this voice shouted back, if you don't get back to your vehicle you'll be on a charge. So I shouted again, banged on the vehicle again and eventually a uh, gentleman came out and said I've warned you if you don't go back to your vehicle you're on a charge hang on you're not one of my lads who the hell are you and I replied that I was naffy in uniform and he said get yourself sorted and I'll be out with that the uh, lads suddenly appeared like prairie dogs out of the desert heads popping up to say what's happening he then told them all to buy the dairy milk chocolate and one voice said but I don't like the chocolate And he said, I don't care if you like it. I like it. And I want the silver foil. We're going to put it on sticks on the right hand side of the track when we go through the breach.
0: Yep, you heard that right. The Naffy wagon was about to sell out of almost all their chocolate stock, or at least all the bars that came in a shiny wrapper.
4: He wanted to put on sticks after the mine vehicles had cleared the track for them, put it on the right-hand side, so the lights of the vehicles when they were going through the breach would reflect off the silver foil like a mirror and indicate that they were on the safe track. It's incredible to think of that bizarre contribution Nafi made to the war
0: effort. So 53,000 troops in the desert trained up and ready to go. But let's face it, there's only so many games of Trivial Pursuit to play, and the delight of a dairy milk lasts a couple of minutes at most. What else could there possibly be to keep the boredom at bay? Who do you think?
5: Linking British forces in the Gulf with British forces worldwide, you're listening to BFBS London.
0: Yes, it's us. Since 1943, BFBS has been connecting, entertaining and informing service personnel and their families all over the world.
5: And good afternoon. My name is Rory Higgins, not Ben Elton. Since the Second World War, BFBS has always had good links with the BBC and our broadcast engineers spoke to the men from the Beeb Possibly in a pub, I cannot confirm or deny that, and managed to get the use of a BBC shortwave frequency, which covered the Gulf region. We were given permission to broadcast three or four half hour programmes a day, and as British personnel arrived in the region, families started to send in requests. By the end of the first week, every programme was inundated with
0: letters and blueies. BFBS TV reporter Rob Olver remembers tuning in.
12: The only way I could pick it up with my shortwave radio, which wasn't a bad one, was to hook up an aerial and and link it to the tent frame, which became an aerial. And suddenly I heard um, a guy called Simon Gettier, who's broadcasting a programme called
0: Simon and the Squad, sort of drifting in and out on shortwave. And uh, I know that that was very popular. So popular, in fact, that moves were made to start broadcasting locally. In 1991, Jonathan Bennett was station controller of BFBS Middle East.
12: The man who drove it more than anybody was the, the boss man, uh, General Sir Peter de la Billia. And I know for a fact that he pushed very hard to get BFBS and uh, the SSBC component into uh, the Middle East. Had he not done so, I suspect we wouldn't have had a live and local presence there until after the combat phase. But he wanted us there and he
0: made it happen. The building of the BFBS studio wasn't entirely plain sailing. January 1991 was wet and rainy. The first studio leaked, so Jonathan, or JB as he's known, sent off an engineer to blag another one.
12: He was dispatched to the port to see if he could wangle a replacement shipping container. And I told him, get a new one, get a new one, In the best condition you can get if you can. And he did procure one and came back and said, I got one, excellent. And uh, I expected there to be a lot of paperwork because he got this through the army. And I thought, oh, I'll have to sign this and write this and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And he said, oh, no, 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 uh, I've got it for a T-shirt. <laughs> so I gave him a BFBS T-shirt. He went back down to the port and we got our brand
2: new container.
0: I love that story. And as a BFBS presenter myself, I've never underestimated the currency of a BFBS T-shirt. So with the studio set up, it was time to crack on with the day job. And
5: I have a note here from Royal Air Force Bryce Norton, a message to uh, a fellow called Carl Cook of uh, 92 Squadron, better known apparently as Fat Eddie. So good afternoon, Fat Eddie.
0: Army Uh, nurse Karen Sanders-Crook says those messages to and from the the Gulf were a lifeline for morale.
9: We did get some tunes and some dedications on BFBS. So that was lovely. I had dedications from family. You know, as we were writing back to family, we'd say, oh, throw a shout out for 3-2 Field Hospital. And there were quite a few of those that came through. So that was lovely. And actually, you know, World Services feels very formal, whereas BFBS always feels like part of the extended family because, you know, the information and the stories that they share is is real. So, yeah, that was lovely to kind of hear a shout out from home.
12: I always remember the snap of a bluey as you opened it. It's engraved on my memory. So, yeah, we, we used them. I mean, everybody used them. There were thousands of them coming into BFBS, absolutely
0: thousands. We never played all of them. We couldn't. There were too many. Compared to the BBC, the music policy at BFBS was a little lenient to accommodate the mood of the troops. They
12: banned a load of songs. They had a huge long list. But the BFBS hierarchy, to their credit, never banned anything because we knew that the songs provided a a release for people under a lot of stress. And the military hierarchy never complained about any of the songs we played either. I look back on it now, I've got some of them listed in front of me. I think, did we really play that? (laughs) Some of the ones that were on that top 10 were uh, Phil Collins in the air tonight, that was banned by the BBC. The Hollies, the air that I breathe, Aerosmith, Love in an Elevator, which we changed to Love in a Respirator, Uh, Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms, The Clash, Rock the Casbah, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Relax, and my favorite, Billy Joel, We didn't start the fire. Do
9: you know what? The tour tune or the tour album, I think, for most of us at the time, was Madonna. And I'm pretty sure she just released her Immaculate Collection at that time. We'd have a dance. And I can't remember, was it Walkmans at that time? I can't remember. But, you know, those that hadn't got them, you'd be sharing a headset, which was really difficult because they only fit one head. But you'd be sharing a headset and trying to bop. And if you couldn't do that, then whoever got the headset had to sing the words. So...
11: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, Sinead O'Connor, Nothing Compares to You, is the one that reminds me, only because that was the last song that I heard being played on the cassette recorder, as it would have been back in the day, on the uh, on the crew bus going out to the aircraft.
8: Always brings me back to the war, is, is In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins, because there's a fantastic uh, video made of the Tornado flying around and doing stuff uh, to, to In the Air Tonight, which is brilliant. We had cassette tapes, which you'd play, play in the back of the jet, and every time we were going towards the border, I'd play... Um, Mars, the giver of war, and highway to the danger zone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then is cheesy off. as hell! Talk and, then, and, then, and then turn it off and concentrate.
0: <laughs> some surprises and some stereotypes on the mixtape then of Air Navigators Martin and Mal. This connection with the troops was vital in a time before email and smartphones, One day, BFBS presenter Rory Higgins arrived for his breakfast show in London and discovered, in amongst a pile of dedications, a letter that had been posted in Paris.
5: The contents truly astounded me. The request, or series of requests really, was from a Rimi serviceman called John McCulloch, one of the Western hostages held by Saddam Hussein near Baghdad. He'd been part of a military liaison team in Iraq, and when Kuwait was invaded, he'd been taken prisoner and held with other hostages. Now, John had uh, got hold of, somehow, a radio.
10: The Iraqis actually gave us a, a Russian-built shortwave radio, which was rather like a brick with knobs on. Uh, one night, we heard the, the BFPS theme tune, um, which is the big band, uh, the military band-style theme tune. Uh, I'll never forget it. My roommate and I both sort of looked at each other and thought, BFBS. And after after what seemed an age, um, the the announcer came up and said, this is BFBS transmitting from Saudi Arabia. We thought, this is incredible. Here we are, 300 and something miles to the north of Baghdad, and uh, we're listening to BFBS. And it went on from there. We actually heard um, the names of people we knew, uh, units that we knew very well from time served in Germany. Um, we could follow quite closely the build-up of, of Allied troops uh, coming into Saudi. And by the units, we knew what sort of equipment was being ranged against Saddam Hussein. And as we were located in a, in a prime training area for Saddam's troops, uh, we could see then that uh, he was in for some trouble.
12: This is BFBS, the British Forces Broadcasting Service. Our next transmission from London will be between 1330 and 1400 hours GMT on the following frequencies.
0: 15. John McCulloch speaking there some years later on BFBS. He was released unharmed by the Iraqis before the combat phase of the conflict began. These
8: programmes from
0: BFBS are for the British
12: forces in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf on Operation Granby. This
4: is BFBS London.
5: Stand by for the latest world headlines and news plus from the newsroom of the British Forces Broadcasting Service, London. The war cabinet has been. BFBS meeting
0: to also, also kept the everyone informed in the with the latest news about the conflict. Prime Minister John Major was interviewed in the London studios in January 91. The
5: main question on everybody's mind, obviously, is how long do you envisage that this will go on?
10: Well, frankly, I wish I knew the answer to that. I can't give you a clear-cut answer to that. I wish that I could, for I understand very well the distress there must be amongst the families, as well as the concern there will be uh, amongst the troops themselves to see this matter brought to a conclusion. I think it'll go on for a while yet. One of the reasons it will go on for a while yet is that we certainly don't wish to engage uh, any land forces voluntarily until such time as we're satisfied that the air attacks have degraded the capacity of the Iraqis to respond. And perhaps I could ask you if you have a message for the British forces listening all around the world to you now? Well, I think I would wish to say this particularly to them. What they are doing over there is a source of the most immense pride and affection over here. If they were here, they could tangibly feel the support there is for them and what they're doing and the magnificent way they're doing it.
0: By December 1990, it was starting to feel like the wait might soon be over and it wouldn't be much longer before British forces went into action.
6: By Christmas time, that was moving in the desert. We weren't far away from where the first Christmas really happened and the light time, when you saw these wonderful stars sort of falling down on top of you, it, it, was, it was moving. We were all moved to a certain extent, but there was a sense of what's going to happen next. I mean, it was very clear that the relationship going on between Iraq and, and, and the United States was falling apart. There wasn't going to be a compromise, Saddam Hussein was not going to withdraw. And you kept thinking, do we really need to do this for surrounding Iraq? There's no real danger and you just rather prayed that diplomacy would work and actually we wouldn't have to do something which we were quite concerned about.
0: Next time on Granby, the storm in the desert.
11: I think we're very conscious that older men and women send younger men and women to war. We may have to make the decision to go, but they bear the risk of being seriously injured, perhaps for life,
10: or not returning at all. And yes, that does weigh on the mind. It can't not do so.
8: Where I found it most frightening and terrifying, in the bus on the way out to the first mission, when the first night we lost a jet from Bahrain. And you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is it. I'm going to get airborne in less than an hour and I might not come back.
3: As it always is in the Persian Gulf, extremely hot weather with clear blue skies was very, very dark like you would imagine the end of the world might look like.
12: I think it was attack, 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 take cover, take cover. And you can hear the fear in my voice. I mean, it it was very real, very genuine. And you can hear the air raid sirens in the background.
2: Our battalion that suffered what was called blue on blue, where we had two of our warrior armoured fighting vehicles attacked by American A-10 Thunderbolt aircraft. And we, we lost nine soldiers in
0: that attack. This is a BFBS podcast produced by me, Jade Calloway and Jess Bracey with interviews from our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden and our editor is Josella Waldron.